Imagine that you were able to unmistakably hear the very voice of God. And that God said to you, get up and go. Go speak on my behalf to the people that you most dislike on this planet. Would you want to go? If God sent you to Russia to speak on his behalf about the horrors in the Ukraine. If God sent you to China or Iran or any of a number of other countries to speak about how they terribly persecute Christians. If God sent you to speak to the people who are protesting across America this weekend, demanding that America continue to allow children's lives to be unjustly ended. Or if God sent you to the person who has most wronged you in this life, if God said, go speak to them for me, what would you think? Well, if we're honest, most of us would probably have a response shaped by what we thought God was asking us to do. If we understood that God was sending us to proclaim his judgment upon these people that we don't like, to say to them, God is soon going to destroy you and light you on fire and hurl you into unending darkness forever, that might make us feel pretty good to announce doom upon those we don't like. That might satiate our fleshly desire for vengeance. But what if God was sending us not to proclaim destruction upon our enemies, but to offer them His mercy? What if we knew that by obeying God's call to go, we were helping our most hated adversaries find forgiveness and avoid God's judgment. How would we feel about that assignment? That we might not like so much. Well, that's the situation the prophet Jonah found himself in about 2,800 years ago. God told Jonah to go speak to a group of people that Jonah hated. And Jonah's response resulted in one of the most interesting, dramatic, convicting, and controversial books of the Bible, the book of Jonah, which we're going to study over the next four weeks. Now, when I say Jonah, you probably think immediately of a whale, and that is because the most famous part of this book involves Jonah being swallowed by a large sea creature. But Jonah is not simply a fun story for kids' Sunday school because there's a big animal in it. The book of Jonah is truly a vivid depiction of the amazing grace and mercy of God and the awful wretchedness of the human heart. This is a mature story that teaches us some profound truths about God. And today we're going to see four such truths in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to learn about God and we're going to learn about ourselves. First, we're going to see that God's actions flow from God's character. Second, we're going to see that human rebellion against God results in our degradation. Third, we're going to see that God sovereignly accomplishes His good purposes no matter how we might try to impede them. And fourth, we're going to see that God's actions in our lives have farther and broader implications than we might realize. So let's start with our first point, which is that God's actions flow from God's character. We begin in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now it's often claimed that the book of Jonah is a legend or a fairy tale, that it is not meant to be taken literally. But that is false. And we know that's false, first of all, because of the way this book begins. 
In the ESV, the first word in Jonah is now. This is a translation of the Hebrew word vayehi, which basically means it happened that. And this same Hebrew word begins many of the historical books of the Old Testament, like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel, books that report history. And our author, probably Jonah himself, frames this book using this same language. He is signaling to us that he is recounting an incident that actually took place. This is no fable. This is meant to be read as history. Second, we know from other sources that Jonah is a real person who lived at a real place at a real time. These opening verses tell us two things about Jonah. He was the son of Amittai, and he was a prophet. We know Jonah was a prophet here because we're told that the word of Yahweh came to him. And that is how the Old Testament consistently describes prophets. And what we learn about Jonah here is attested elsewhere in Israel's history. In 2 Kings 14, verse 25, we read that Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer, prophesied during the evil reign of King Jeroboam II. And during that period, Jonah announced a message of God's grace and kindness to his own undeserving evil society. So Jonah was a known historical figure. And from this reference in 2 Kings 14, we know when he lived, because Jeroboam's reign lasted between 793 and 753 B.C. Now, the very fact that we know that Jonah was real and when he lived already distinguishes this book from the vast majority of legends throughout world history, which typically involve non-historical mythic figures who dwell in the ether of some vague land once upon a time. That is not what is going on here. Here we have a real man who lived in a real place at a real time. But there is another source who even more clearly establishes the historical reality of Jonah, and that is the Lord Jesus, who in both Matthew 12 and Matthew 16 refers to the sign of Jonah, which he defines as Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So Jesus certainly believed Jonah to be a real figure and the events of this book to be historical. We ought to as well. Now, because we know when Jonah lived, we can better appreciate the significance of what we find at the start of this book, the command that God gives Jonah in verses 1 and 2, to arise and go to Nineveh. During the time that Jonah lived, Nineveh was one of the most important cities on earth. It was one of the preeminent cities of the Assyrian Empire, the empire that dominated the region near Israel. Assyria was rich and powerful, and it was aggressive and cruel. It acted like the mafia. It told its neighbors, pay us money or we'll attack you. And according to Assyrian records, Israel paid up. And it's here to Nineveh that God tells Jonah to go. Now to Jonah, this would have been a shocking and incomprehensible command. Because ancient Israel did not have a great commission. They were not under orders from God to go make disciples of every nation. They didn't do foreign missions. So this would have been a pretty surprising and unique command that God gave Jonah. But friends, it is an important command because it reveals something to us about God. 
God is not simply a tribal deity. His power and authority are not limited to a certain territory or a certain nation. His interest is not confined to a particular ethnic group. No, friends, God reigns over the entire earth. And God cares about and is involved in the affairs of every people group, not just Israel. Now, that should not have been a surprise to the Israelites. After all, God had told Abraham centuries earlier that ultimately he meant to bless all the nations of the earth. But as the years went by, Israel forgot that. Israel believed that because they had a unique covenantal relationship with God, they were the only nation that mattered in God's sight. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But this idea that God would send one of his prophets to a Gentile nation would have been absolutely startling, not just to Jonah, but also to the original readers of this book. Now, why did God want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Well, God says that he wants Jonah to call out against it. That is, Jonah is to proclaim a message of doom upon the city. And we learn here why God wants Jonah to give this message. Because God says, Nineveh's evil has come up before me. I want to camp on this expression for a minute because it's going to teach us some important things about God. It's helpful to know from the beginning of this book that Jonah is filled with wordplay. And this phrase is the first place where we find it. Because this Hebrew word translated evil can mean a few different things. First, it could mean Nineveh's moral evil. It's sin. And certainly here, God must mean, at least in part, that he has taken notice of the fact that Nineveh was a city filled with sin. In fact, history tells us that Nineveh was one of the most evil cities in world history. A generation later, the prophet Nahum would call it the bloody city, and for good reason. Nineveh and the entire Assyrian Empire were infamous for their love of violence. In Chicago, there's a museum called the Oriental Institute. It's got probably the largest collection of Assyrian art in the United States. And if you go there, what you will see over and again are depictions of people being tortured and killed. Mounds of severed heads, people having their skin peeled off, or being impaled on spikes. This is what Nineveh thought was suitable for its art. They reveled in violence. Moreover, they were filled with idolatry. They perpetrated an aggressive and violent foreign policy, destroying neighboring nations, enslaving and forcibly repopulating entire people groups. Nineveh was a bad, bad place. And friends, God saw its evil, just as God sees the evil in our world. We may hear about the horrors of the war in Ukraine. Friends, God knows about all of them. We may hear about the persecutions and martyrdoms of Christians all around the world. God sees them all. In our culture, God sees every bit of violence and depravity and celebration of evil. And even in our lives, God has seen every wrong that we have suffered and inflicted. Friends, God has borne witness. And God is not merely a passive witness to all of this evil. He is its judge. That truth may seem distant to us today. Because so often it seems that God just lets evil continue in this world without bringing it to a sudden and imminent conclusion. But the Bible tells us 
that God withholds his judgment upon evil until the time is right, until a certain quantity of evil has been committed. Then he unleashes his wrath. That's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham's descendants had to wait to conquer the promised land for 400 years because only then would the iniquity of the Amorites be full. Only then would they be ripe for judgment. And what God says here to Jonah is that Nineveh is now ripe for judgment. Its doom is near, and Jonah should tell them so. When we read verse 2 in this way, we see some of God's attributes. That God is a God of justice and a God of wrath, and that He will avenge sin. People don't like to talk about that today. Many Christians have tried to run from this truth because we find it personally distasteful, or we think that it won't play well in appealing to our pluralistic and relativistic culture. But the Bible's clear. Isaiah 6 says God is holy, holy, holy. Abraham understands in Genesis 18 that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And James 1.15 says that sin brings forth death. That is an immutable law of nature. God will judge rebellion. And here we see that Nineveh is ripe for judgment, just as one day every nation will be ripe for judgment. Just as every one of us who does not turn in repentant faith to Jesus will one day be ripe for judgment, because God is just. And yet, there is another way to read verse 2. Because this word translated evil doesn't always mean sin. Sometimes it means something else. It can also mean disaster. And when we look at verse 2 from that perspective, we understand what God is doing here a bit differently. Seen from this angle, God doesn't send Jonah to Nineveh because of the magnitude of Nineveh's sin. Rather, God sends Jonah to Nineveh because of the magnitude of the calamity that will soon fall upon Nineveh because of its sin. And read this way, Jonah's mission is not an expression of God's wrath, but of God's mercy. You see, friends, God is a God who warns, who calls out in Ezekiel 33, turn from your wicked ways. Why? Why will you die? Who says in Jeremiah chapter 18, if at any time I speak concerning a nation, that I will destroy it, and that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see, friends, God is not only wrathful. He's also the God in James 2 who says mercy triumphs over judgment. God is gracious, compassionate, kind, slow to anger and abounding in love, quick to forgive sin. So this word evil can be taken in either of these ways in verse 2. As speaking of Nineveh's sin or the judgment that God would soon unleash on Nineveh. Which does God mean here? Well, I think he means both. And Jonah, I think, tells us that later. Because in chapter 3, verse 10, he uses this same word twice in just one sentence, once referring to Nineveh's sin and once referring to God's judgment. And because both of these meanings are in view, then we need to see that God sends Jonah not only as an act of justice or not only as an act of mercy, but God sends Jonah as an expression of both of these attributes. In fact, as an expression of all of his attributes. Friends, God does not change. He does not turn his attributes on and off. 
No, God is outside of time, unchanging, always perfectly and infinitely expressing all of his attributes at once. And so we need to understand that when God acts, like he acts here, sending Jonah, he's not acting merely in line with one of his attributes. We're accomplishing only one purpose. But friends, God is accomplishing many things, expressing all of his attributes. Let me give you another example of this. Consider the cross of Christ. At Calvary, we see in horrific terms the awful price of sin. We see the justice and wrath of God laid bare. But we also see the love of God at the cross, don't we? Offering us a way of salvation. The same seemingly opposite attributes that animated God's call of, jo of Jonah also stand behind the cross, and they stand behind everything else that God does. The gospel proclamation that God uses to save one person, he may also use to judicially harden someone else. The discipline that God may use to correct one person, he may use as a warning to keep someone else from transgressing. Friends, God is always at work. And because God always expresses all of his attributes, God's work will always accomplish many different purposes. Because God's actions reveal who God is, and they reflect all of God's infinite excellencies. But we come now to our second point. And here we see that human rebellion degrades us. God tells Jonah to get up and go. And Jonah gets up and goes all right, but not in the direction that God commanded. Jonah was to go east to Nineveh, but instead, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but the fact that Jonah had to get on a ship to go there tells us it was somewhere to the west. Early commentators thought that Tarshish was in North Africa. Today, many people associate it with Spain. But wherever it was, it was at least 2,500 miles away from Nineveh in the opposite direction. So Jonah's trying to get away from God's call as fast as he can. Why? Why does Jonah do this? Well, the book makes us wait until chapter 4 for the answer. But since this story is nearly 3,000 years old, I don't feel too bad about giving spoilers here. Jonah runs because he does not want to bring a message to Nineveh that might lead to its repentance. In chapter 4, Jonah says to God, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And Jonah doesn't confess that in praise to God. Jonah spits it in rage at God. Jonah knew that God was merciful, and Jonah didn't want Nineveh to receive any mercy. He wanted it destroyed. He didn't want to preach a single word to them that might lead them to be spared. Now, we might ask, why did Jonah hate the Ninevites so much? Why was he so determined that they should be destroyed? The book never tells us, but I can think of four explanations. First, perhaps Jonah was a racist. You know, racism is not a new invention. It's as old as Babel, and it's satanic. And if you have questions about that, look at what happened in Buffalo yesterday. Racism reflects the spirit of Antichrist because it denies the truth that we are all equally made in the image of God. But while racism is an ancient evil, it is also a widespread and often occurring evil. And even ancient Israel had some racist tendencies. Jews very much looked down on Gentiles, calling them dogs, 
segregating themselves from the Gentiles, treating them as unclean and disgusting. And perhaps this racism is the root of Jonah's rebellion, that he hated Gentiles, and he couldn't see why the God of Israel should waste one drop of mercy on them. Oh, in 2 Kings 14, Jonah had been content to announce God's grace and mercy to an undeserving wicked people. But those people were Jonah's people. They were Jews. He was okay with them being forgiven, but not Gentiles. Maybe that was the issue. Or second, maybe Jonah fancied himself a patriot. He exalted politics above God's will. God said, go to Assyria, but for generations, Assyria had extorted and humiliated Israel. Maybe Jonah saw this as an opportunity to bring down his nation's chief enemy and avenge the way they had bullied his people. Or third, maybe Jonah's objections were personal. Some writers have suggested that Jonah's hometown or family might have suffered mistreatment by the Assyrians during Assyria's previous military campaigns in the region. That's possible. Or fourth, perhaps Jonah's objections were rooted in his own morality. He thinks that Nineveh is just too wicked and too corrupt to be given a second chance. They've got to go. Any of these reasons might explain Jonah's flight. But whatever Jonah's reason was in fleeing, we need to understand two things. First, Jonah's attitudes would have been shared by the original readers of this book. And his attitudes may reflect our attitudes also today. I don't know your heart, but maybe today you hear about Jonah, some of these things that Jonah thought, and you said, that sounds like me. Maybe today you deeply dislike people who are ethnically different than you. Or perhaps today you deeply dislike people that you see as a political threat to your desires for this country. Or you have a long-standing grudge against somebody. Or maybe you see some people and you say, their sin is just so bad, it should put them outside the possibility of God's forgiveness. We, like Jonah, may nurse these kinds of bitterness and hate and desire to see other people get what's coming to them. But friends, that attitude is sin and it is grievous. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, and he doesn't mean pray for their destruction. And even here in the Old Testament... This book stands as a testimony that Jonah's hateful attitude is sin. This book is a rebuke to Jonah and to Jonah's generation and to every reader who nurses bitterness and hatred in our hearts because this shows us where hatred leads, to degradation and further evil. But the second thing I want you to see here is that no matter how strong the rationalization was in Jonah's mind, no matter how much he thought he could justify his escape, his attempt to escape was sin because it disobeyed an explicit command of God. And friends, no matter how powerful an excuse or rationalization we can conjure up, nothing can ever excuse us from obedience to the word of God. God is always in the right and disobedience to God's word is always wrong. And by fleeing here, Jonah becomes less like the holy God that he belongs to and more like the wicked Ninevites that he hates. Now, we might see this and say, well, this is stupid. Does Jonah really think he can outrun God? I think Jonah knew he couldn't outrun God. After all, Psalm 139 was written 250 years earlier, and it said quite plainly, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We can never escape God. 
It's inconceivable that Jonah didn't know this. No, I don't think he thinks he can outrun God. No, what Jonah is fleeing is the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get as far away from the temple where God uniquely manifested his presence as he could get. He wanted to get as far away from God's call on his life as he could get. He wanted to get as far away from God's people as he could get. He is trying to distance himself from everything related to God. And friends, that is a common thing that people do when we decide that our sin is more attractive than obedience. We try to hide or flee from God. And we may put ourselves deliberately in situations that will dull our awareness of what is right and good and that will make us feel more comfortable with doing evil. Now today this might look different than us getting on a boat to Tarshish. Maybe today it looks more like this. We stop reading our Bibles. We start distancing ourselves from the church and the people in the church because we don't want to hear what they have to say to us. We surround ourselves with only ungodly people who tell us that what we want to do is really right. We fill our minds with ungodly entertainment to make us think that our sin is normalized and safe. But friends, sin is not safe. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin corrodes. And that's what happens to Jonah here. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But if we draw away from God, we will send ourselves into a tailspin of depravity and corruption. We will harden our hearts and we will be increasingly degraded. And that's where Jonah finds himself as he flees. And listen to how the book of Jonah depicts Jonah's escape here. It's very vivid. Notice this interesting word that comes up again and again in the next few verses. Verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's going down into ruin. When God sends a massive, furious storm to impede him, we read in verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. When God confronts Jonah about his sin through the storm, Jonah hardens his heart and says, I'd rather sleep this off. My escape is in my bed. And we see how hard Jonah's heart becomes in the rest of this chapter. Because once the sailors on the boat realize they can't escape God's storm, and once God tells them that Jonah is the cause of their trouble, look at what Jonah says to them in verse 9. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah's aware of the power of God. Jonah claims to fear God, all while he is sinning with tremendous boldness. He doesn't tremble before God. Instead, he flippantly says to the sailors, oh yeah, God, I'm defying him. And when the sailors hear that, they're terrified. But it doesn't impact Jonah at all. Jonah has so seared his own conscience, he cannot even perceive that his life is totally at odds with his profession of faith. What a terrible place to be. But his depravity goes further still. Because when the sailors ask him in verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah is so opposed to God. He says, I'm willing to go down even further. Down into the bottom of the sea. Down into the grave. He says, I'd rather die than obey. And so the sailors eventually oblige him. Verse 15, 
They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Jonah thought he had won. Yes, it might cost me my life, but I've stopped God's plans. Nineveh's going to be toast, or at least if it's saved, it will be through somebody else, not through me. But Jonah's not going to escape quite that easily. Because the last verse tells us, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah goes down once more into the disgusting innards of a gigantic sea creature. Now, in this pa passage, Jonah falls into a common trap. He thinks that his rebellion is preferable to obedience. And many people in our world believe this. It is, in fact, the great ambition of our culture, according to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. There's this idea that if we could just be rid of God and his rule, that we would be free to do whatever seems best to us and that that would work out to our advantage. We would find true liberty. Friends, that is a lie. Sin is not a safe journey into self-actualization and freedom. Sin is slavery. Sin destroys us and those near us. It hardens our heart and it ultimately leads us to physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And that's what Jonah found out. He thought he was on this epic quest, shaking his fist at God. He was a fool. And he meditates on that as he languishes in the digestive juices of the fish, heading to Nineveh despite his best attempts not to. Friends, be warned, sin doesn't lead to good outcomes. Don't be deceived. I don't know what temptation is besetting you today. Financial impropriety or sexual impropriety, ambition, arrogance, substance abuse, hatefulness, violence, whatever it might be. Friends, I solemnly warn you, that is a road to ruin. Whatever good you think you'll get by indulging in that, you won't get it. Instead, like Jonah, you will be brought down to humiliation, degradation, and calamity, eternal calamity if you don't know Jesus, and calamitous discipline if you do. Friends, sin is a deceitful and ultimately disappointing venture. And here we see Jonah in a grotesque situation because of it. But we come now to our third point, and here we see that God sovereignly accomplishes his good purposes, no matter how we might try to impede him. Jonah imagined that he could thwart God's plan by getting on this boat. But as God says in Isaiah 43, I am he, I work, and who can turn it back? Nobody can stop God's plans. And so we read in verse 4 that as Jonah fled by boat, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God uses his power to generate this storm, which stops the boat dead in its westward movement, no more running, and it plunges the boat into crisis. God's going to make sure Jonah comes off that boat. Now, Jonah sees this storm. He understood it was God's answer to his sin, but he hardened his heart to it and went to sleep. However, the pagan sailors on the boat didn't have that luxury. They had to try to rescue the ship. And more than that, according to verse 5, they were crying out to their false gods for mercy. And when that didn't happen, verse 7 says, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. They recognized something was supernatural about this storm, 
and they wanted to know whose fault it was on the boat, so they cast basically dice, hoping the gods would use the dice to tell them who was guilty. And once again, the living God exerts his power, and this pagan lot casting becomes an accurate oracle. Verse 7, the lot fell on Jonah. See, friends, God is not only sovereign over big events like the storm, he's also sovereign over small events like the throw of the dice. Proverbs 16 says the lot is cast into the lap and its every decision is from the Lord. God uses even small events like this to bring about his ultimate purposes. But God's not done in this situation. As Jonah is confronted by his shipmates, we read in verse 11, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The storm was already really strong. God ratcheted things up a bit further to force the sailor's hand, to force them to give up Jonah. And at first they try to resist. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. God ratchets things up even more until they've got no choice, until they have to throw Jonah overboard. And at once we read, the sea ceased from its raging. God's purposes for the boat being accomplished, he graciously lets them continue their journey. But as Jonah sank to the bottom of the sea, God had one more intervention to perform. So he appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. A fish that we'll see in chapter 3 is headed back due east. Now what we see in these verses is not only the immense power of God, who is absolutely sovereign over storms and fish and dice, but we see that God brings his power to bear in service of his ultimate plans and purposes. Nobody can thwart the plan of God. That's what Job says after he saw the mighty power of God in that book. Job 42, 2, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, this is a truth that people have tried to run from because often things happen in life that we don't like. And we say, I cannot accept that a good, all-powerful God who is in control of all things, would let this bad thing happen in my life. And so we invent new explanations. We say either God isn't really there, or He isn't really in control, or He isn't really all-powerful, or He isn't all-good. Or we may begin to believe that because the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that somehow humans have the upper hand in determining what happens. Friends, that is nonsense. Humans may rebel against God like Jonah did, but God is able to take what people mean for evil and turn it to good and work through it to see that his plan is still accomplished. Again, think of Christ's death. In Acts 2, Peter says, This Jesus, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, human choice and responsibility are real. The men who murdered Jesus were liable for their sin, but their intent to thwart God's plan failed. In fact, what they thought would stop God's plan was the actual means God used to achieve His plan. See, friends, God is in total control over all things. Things that may seem insignificant to us, like the throw of the dice, or what we find in Matthew 10. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God is sovereign over how many hairs you have. He's sovereign over the lifespan of every little creature. But he's also sovereign over big matters too, like salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty six. 26. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Salvation is ultimately a matter of God's choice, not our choice. We might resist that, but that's what the text says. God is sovereign over salvation. God is also sovereign over the future. Isaiah 46.9, God says, I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says what's going to happen and he unfailingly brings it to pass. Friends, God is so sovereign. Colossians 1.17 says he even sustains everything in the universe. Even the smallest subatomic particle does its job because God is on the case watching it. That is immense sovereign power. And friends, here is the truth about God's sovereignty in Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now this should not be a truth that troubles us. This should reassure us. Because if things were otherwise, we would be in a heap of trouble. If God's plans could be thwarted by Satan, or the rulers of this world, or the sinful schemes of a Jonah, or a you, or a me, we would have no security in our salvation. We would have no firm promise about the future. But it's good news that God is sovereign. If you know Jesus, this should encourage you today. If God cares about the little sparrows, how much more does he care about you? Jesus says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. In fact, God promises in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that promise doesn't apply to us if we don't know Jesus. If we don't know Jesus, all things will not work out for our good in the end. All things will work out for our condemnation in the end. But if we do know Jesus, then indeed he will work out all things for our ultimate good, even the worst things we experience. How can that be? Because Romans 8.28 doesn't promise that life is going to be filled with happiness for us, but it promises that whatever we encounter in this life, in the end, God will use it to bring about our ultimate good, which the next verse defines as being our conformity to the image of the Son. Believers, God promises to use everything in life to accomplish our sanctification, and to glorify us in the end. That's the promise. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And the truth of God's sovereignty is what secures that promise. So believing friends rejoice because God reigns and His plans cannot be thwarted. His plans in your life and my life and His plans for Nineveh and Jonah, they could not be thwarted. But we come now to our last point, which is that God's actions in our lives have farther and broader implications than we might realize. It is very easy to read Jonah 1 and only focus on Jonah's struggle with the Almighty. But if we read it like that, we miss some important characters here. We miss what happens to the sailors on the boat. And what chapter 1 also shows us is that the drama between God and Jonah in the end is not only about God and Jonah. It also has a profound impact on others who see this situation. When we first meet the sailors, we're introduced to them right after God brings the storm against the boat. In verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These sailors are Gentiles and pagans who each worship different gods. 
These are the sorts of people Jonah would have no regard for. But they have a regard for Jonah. Initially, they want Jonah to come out and pray to his God alongside them to combat this storm. But Jonah is nowhere to be found. He is asleep in the belly of the boat. So verse 6, the captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. But while the captain was rousing Jonah, the men on deck cast lots, and they discovered Jonah was the cause of their problem. And yet they don't just kill Jonah outright. They don't say, well, hey, he's the guilty guy. Let's get rid of him. Now it's basically Jonah's posture towards Nineveh, right? They're guilty. Let them die. The sailors don't adopt that callous attitude. Instead, they diligently inquire into Jonah's situation. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah told them, he's a Hebrew. He serves the one true God who made everything. And he is disobediently fleeing this God. And the sailors' response is horror. They might have been pagan Gentiles, but they had enough sense to know that offending the God who made everything is a bad idea. They've got better theology than God's prophet had. But they still don't just kill Jonah to get out of their trouble. Instead, verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? They involve Jonah in their decision making. And even though Jonah says, cast me into the sea, they make a concerted effort to save his life, to do whatever they can to avoid throwing him in. But in the end, they see their efforts to resist God are futile. They learn the lesson that Jonah refuses to learn. And so verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Look at this. These guys who start out as pagan Gentiles are now praying together to Yahweh, fearing his justice, acknowledging his sovereignty. You see, by observing Jonah's sin and God's power, they have learned about the reality of the Lord. And unlike Jonah, who knew what God wanted and refused to obey it, when the sailors figure out God wants Jonah cast in, they obey it. They do what Jonah won't do. They obey God. And once more, they see God's mighty power. And their spiritual journey is not finished yet until verse 16, where we read, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This crew of pagans is seemingly converted to the worship of the one true God because of this experience. Now, what do we learn here? Friends, in every event, God has a multiplicity of purposes. In this chapter, we see God has a purpose for Nineveh, a purpose born out of justice and mercy. He has a purpose for Jonah, born out of discipline, to teach him obedience and to correct his sinful attitudes. God also has a purpose for these sailors to convert them. And God accomplishes all of these ends and more through this one incident. And this is important for us to remember. You know, it's very easy to imagine that the bad events that happen in our lives are ultimately and only about God's purpose for us. But friends, what happens to us is something that the people around us will also see. They watch how God deals with us. They watch how we respond to God in good and bad times. And sometimes, years later, we think, I don't know why God let me go through this situation. And in actuality, it had nothing to do with us at all. God used a situation with us to really primarily try to reach somebody else. Friends, what I want you to know is this. 
God's purposes are larger and grander than we can realize. We can only see what is immediately before us, but God operates on a whole other level. Today, he is arranging things in our lives now that will have an impact for decades and centuries to come upon people who we will never meet. And when we recognize this, when we perceive the power and wisdom and planning of this God, that his ways are infinitely higher than ours, we see that all we should do in the face of this God is to trust him because he knows what he's doing and his plans are good. So to conclude, in Jonah 1, we've seen some powerful truths about God, his justice and his mercy, his sovereignty and his omnipotence. Today, I want to say to you, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, doom is coming your way. You are being made ripe for judgment. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is God the Son who became a man, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Cast yourself on Jesus' mercy and live. But today, if you do know Jesus, I want you to remember, no matter where you are in life, God is in control. And he is working all things out for their ultimate conclusion, which will result in his glory and your good. I want you to remember that everything you experience is not ultimately all about you. Other people are watching. Leave a good testimony to them so that they, like the sailors in this passage, might worship our God and marvel at him. I want you to remember that hateful attitudes are dangerous. I tell you this from personal experience. Bitterness is a twisted and powerful, corrupting thing. Do whatever it takes to root it out of your heart. Because as we see in this passage, it is hate that leads Jonah on his downward descent. Friend, if you're tempted to do so, don't flee from God's word and God's people. Draw near to God by keeping these important tools close that God has given us to keep us close to him. And lastly, friends, remember that sin is not safe. It corrupts, degrades, and hardens our hearts. It deserves death and hell. Believing, friends, we have all been like Jonah and Nineveh. We have all sinned. We have all merited God's wrath. The only thing that prevents us from going down to ruin is the love of Jesus manifested at the cross. Praise Jesus for that. And because of what Jesus has done, may we live to resist sin and submit ourselves in obedience to him. I leave you with the words of the old slave spiritual. God sent Jonah to Nineveh land. Jonah disobey my God command. Paid his fare and he got on board. Children, don't do that. Don't you do that. Don't you do that. God got his eye on you. Let's pray.